Well, it's good to be back. I'm looking forward to continuing the study that we started a couple weeks ago. And uh, I heard Christian did a great job while I was gone, and uh, I was encouraged about that. He's been a lot of help with for me as I've been studying through things, and I knew he'd do a good job. So I'm glad he was here. I, I was at a, a small alpine lake in central Idaho for the last week, and uh, I'll tell you, it sure made me dream of new creation. Because you get away, and it's a beautiful setting up there in the mountains, and you just think, you know what, I'd just like to pack up everything and move here and stay here. And it was neat how that reality of new creation and of how I I can look forward to a day when I I will finally be set free from all the burdens of this world. And that's part of what that desire is, right? That when you go somewhere where it's quiet and it's peaceful, there's party that just wants to stay there. And that that's a longing for new creation that we have. And so... I came back reinvigorated to, to continue this series and for us to continue to pursue new creation as we look forward to that. And um, I just pass on to you that it was really good and encouraging for me. Um, always too short, though. I could spend much more time there. You guys know how that is. Um, before we move into the, the story of God that we're going to tell today, I just wanted to kind of clean up, uh, clarify a couple things that we talked about in the first couple weeks. Um, one of them is the, the first week when I was talking about how God was moving things from creation to new creation. I think some people misunderstood me to say that, um, or maybe I misstated, I don't want to put it on someone else, but um, that somehow this is plan B, that that God intended something that then didn't come to pass, Uh, that when the fall of man came, that God somehow had to scramble to fix the situation, and that's not at all what I was intending. The main point I was trying to make that first week is that everything that God intended from the very beginning. And what we see in his intention in Genesis 1 is to have a world that is populated with people made in his image, ruling over his creation. And my point was that that does come to fulfillment. That everything that God intended from the very beginning is exactly what comes to fulfillment. And if if what we see in the new creation is anything less than that, then somehow Satan thwarted God's plan. And we know that's not the case. right? So that's why we can envision new creation really as the fulfillment of of the initial creation. So um, some people thought I didn't think God was completely in control there, or that's what I was saying, and that's not my point. So clean that one up. Um, second thing is people were a little bit bothered by two weeks ago I was talking when we were reading out of Matthew 25, how I was saying that believers ought to be primary, they ought to be first in our care for the poor. Um, and some people were a little bit bothered by that. Um, you're bothered by Jesus' words and ultimately by Paul's, not by mine. Um, it doesn't seem natural to us at first. Like we, we might think, well, that doesn't seem like the right thing. But in the context of Matthew 25, Jesus is saying that when you care for these poor, when you feed these hungry, when you give water to those that are thirsty, when you visit these ones in prison, you're doing it to me. Jesus isn't saying, I identify with all the poor and the hungry and those in prison. He's saying, I identify with, he says specifically in verse 40, my brothers that are in that situation. That he's saying, those that are my family, how would us just doing it to someone who completely rejects and rebels against Christ be like doing it unto him? You see, that passage is often misused for us to go and just care for people in general. Not that God doesn't want us to do that, hear me correctly, but that he says first and foremost that we ought to be focusing on those that are in the church. In Galatians 6, I made kind of an offhanded reference to it, but Galatians 6.10 says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone, but especially those. You see, we need to view Christianity as a large family. And who doesn't take care of their family, right? If if I was to go and to say, you know what, to to my wife and to my kids, you know what, I'm I'm not going to take care of you, and I know you're hungry, but I'm going to go give food to someone who's across the street, that wouldn't make sense to anybody, right? And no one would want to join my family then, would they? They look and say, I don't want to be a part of your family. I'd rather be outside your family because you care more for them than those that are inside your family. So that's why God wants us to do it because he wants the world to see the love that we have for one another. And don't take it as, oh, good, I don't have to care for those that are outside the church because he says, do good as you have the opportunity, do good to all people, but especially those of the household of faith. So uh, clear that up. If you guys still have problems with that, then you can talk to Paul and Jesus Um, because they were pretty clear. Now, what we're going to talk about as we tell the story today, um, I'm going to move a little more quickly through the story and spend a lot of time on how this story works out for implications in our lives. Um, I think you guys are starting to get familiar now after a couple weeks with the way the story kind of works, the main components, what what we move through as we go. 
Um, so I'm going to spend some more time on now you beginning to see how, okay, I understand that story. How does that work out in my life? How do I help that work out in someone else's life? And the way we're going to tell the story today is from the, the perspective of kingship. That God has intended this thing called kingship, and from the very beginning, that is what he intended. One of the verses that we had up on the screen um, is one that we're not going to read again. Um, but it says that man was called to be the ruler over creation, right? That when God made man, he intended, he specifically made him to be, if you will, a sub-king under him. That he is the king over all things, and then he intended man to rule and have dominion over the whole earth, right, as, as he was under him. Now, this is one that I think specifically has a really strong application for us because of something that happened last weekend, right? We had a big fireworks show to celebrate it, was our rebellion against a king, right? This country was founded, and I'm not going to get into all the details about right and wrong, but this country was founded on rebellion against a monarchy, right? The king of England was doing some things that the forefathers of this country thought were illegal and wrong, and they rebelled and said, we will not be under a monarchy anymore. And so deep down in the roots of this country is a sense of rebellion, and no one will tell me what to do. Right? And you know that in your lives, some of you might not be Americans, but for all of us that are Americans, this really kind of runs deep with us, that no one's going to tell me what to do. And that's what makes this part of the story of God so important for us to hear, because it really begins to confront us at that area where kind of at the core of us, we are in rebellion. So at the beginning of creation, if we can uh, see that first slide there, you can see me in my birthday suit again. I know you guys missed that, so I thought I'd show you again. Yeah, there you go. So at the very beginning, God made man to rule over creation. He says, I, I've made you in my own image. Part of us being made in the image of God was for us to rule and to reign over his creation. So that was from the very beginning, the way that God intended it was for this reign and this rule to happen. But then we have the fall. And if we can just move quickly there to the, the next one. And I'm, I'm not going to go to Genesis 3. I want you to turn in your Bible to Genesis 10. Because this is the place that we see... The fall worked out in terms of kingdom. Genesis 10, the first place we see this word um, kingdom used is in Genesis 10.10, and um, it's in reference to this guy named Nimrod. Um, Don't go naming your kids that. He's not a great guy. Um, I knew immediately, like, man, that's a great name. I'm going to name my kid that. Come here, Nimrod. Uh, Verse 10, it says, The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Echad, Kalna in the land of Shinar. So the first idea of kingdom, and what we see in Genesis 10.10 there, is that it's looking forward to chapter 11. And so we move over to chapter 11, and it says in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain and land of Shinar, and they settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar, and then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower when the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So God intends for kingdoms and for man to rule, but he gives them specific direction, right? He told Adam, and then after the flood, he tells Noah the same thing. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we see here at Babel, the first human kingdom, that in in the fall, after the fall, human kingdoms now stand in rebellion against God rather than submission to God. You see, he wants human kingdoms to live out for his glory, for his namesake. And instead, they decided that we're going to make a tower. And they say specifically why. And it's in direct rebellion to what God told them to do. He said, I want you to spread over the face of the entire earth. But what did they say in verse 4? Let's build this tower lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Right? In direct rebellion. And that's what the kingdoms of this world have begun to do and what they continue to do is that mankind builds kingdoms and builds nations that are in direct rebellion against God, trying to do the exact opposite of what he has told us to do. 
So he says, first of all, they rebel against God's command to fill the earth. And then the second thing, which is also there in verse 4, it says they want to do it. Why? To make a name for ourselves. And so many nations of the world, and each one of you have at some point in your life, you may be continuing to do it, you're trying to build a kingdom to make a name for yourself. And you see, that's what's happened since the fall, is that God says, no, you're supposed to make a kingdom for my name's sake, but instead we've taken it in rebellion. We've said, no, what? I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a kingdom for my name's sake because I want people to know about me. I don't want them to know about you. But then God begins to bring redemption. And we have the book of Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. And in there, God doesn't directly until kind of at the end say that he is calling himself their king. But in the whole way that thing's structured, and it, um, I talked about a couple weeks ago how he lays out like a marriage contract where he says, I'm going to marry you, like you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your husband, you'll be my wife sort of situation. There's also another way to look at those, that, that covenant that he makes with them, which is as a king to his people. That I'm going to be your king, and this is what I will do as your king, and you're going to be my people, and this is what you'll do as my people. So in that, he's establishing now that he is going to directly reign, that God is the king over the whole earth, right? That's the reality. But in a very specific way that he's going to reign through this people, Israel. And he says, I am going to reign over you, and I am going to be your king, and then he's going to provide leaders. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, he gives warnings. He says, okay, at some point, you're going to want a human king. You're not just going to want to have God as king that you can't see. You're going to want to have a human king. And when it comes to that day, that's okay, but you have to have a king that I choose. Don't have a king like you want to choose. And then he warns them what's going to happen if you choose a king like you want. And that's in Deuteronomy 17. If you, at some point you want to write that down, you can go read that. Now, we, at the end of Deuteronomy, Joshua takes um, the nation of Israel, and they go in and they conquer the land. The book of Joshua ends with Joshua telling them, we've conquered almost the entire land. You need to fulfill this, finish it out. And then we go into the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is like a toilet bowl. It just goes around and around. And it kind of gets better for a little bit. Judges come and they set them free. But then they go back into sin again. And then God, they go into bondage. And God has to set them free. But it's not just a circle. It's a downward spiral down the toilet. And the end of the book of Judges, the very last verse, is there to sum up what that whole book is about. In Judges 21-25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, that is the point of the book of Judges, that when the people of God don't have a king, they live out independently, and that's what most of us are doing. You're, we're all out here trying to live independently of God, and we're doing what is right in our own eyes instead of having a king who is over us. And we'll see that we are supposed to be living now as having a king over us. So Israel now is in this incredible, incredibly bad situation, the evil and the sin. I mean, you read the book of Judges, it's at least PG-13. There's some bad stuff going on in there. And it's because Israel is just going down the toilet because there is no king. The book of Judges ends and we move into the book of 1 Samuel. And the question begins to be asked, okay, Israel needs a king, but what kind of a king does it need? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Right after the book of Judges. Sorry, Ruth is slipped in there. Didn't want to confuse anyone. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, now, Samuel was a great judge, and he was the last judge of Israel. And he's been judging Israel, and his sons are not the kind of sons that we all would hope to have. It says in verse eight, or sorry, chapter 8, verse 3, that his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So, verse 4, that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. 
Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Then from verse 10 down to verse 18, Samuel goes and says, this is what your king's going to be like. You say you want a king, this is what he's going to be like. And he warns them. And in verse 19, it says, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man back to his city. Then in chapter 9, God shows him Saul. And in chapter 10, he anoints Saul as king over them. They said, no, we want a king like every other nation. We want a king to fight battles for us. We, that's what we want. And he says, no, you don't. That's not the kind of king you want. You want the kind of king that, that God would give you. And then beginning in chapter 10, after Saul gets appointed, you just start to see Saul immediately starts to go downhill. And they get the kind of king that they deserved. And as things start to go downhill, then he says, you know what? I'm going to show you the kind of king that you, do des- that you should want. I'm going to show you the kind of king that I would choose. And he picks this, this person that no one ever would have picked. It's this young shepherd boy named David. And he sends Samuel and he says, I want you to anoint him. And this idea of anointing, we talk about Jesus Christ and we use this word Christ all the time. Understand that the idea of Christ or of the Hebrew word Messiah, they're the same word, Greek and Hebrew, Christ or Messiah comes from the idea of the anointed one, which ultimately goes back to this idea of the king that he anointed one as the ruler over his people. And so from this beginning, as he anoints Saul and then he anoints David, he's looking forward to this idea that this anointed one, this Messiah, would be the one who would reign over his people. And so as you start to go through the book of 1 Samuel, David shows up on the scene, and David, immediately after we see him, goes and defeats Goliath. And everyone just thinks, man, he's amazing, right? But it wasn't that David was amazing, right? The thing that distinguished David from Saul wasn't that he was a great warrior. Because Saul was bigger, stronger, better warrior. The thing that distinguished David from Saul was that he was a man of faith. Remember we saw Abraham a couple weeks ago, that what distinguished Abraham was that he was a man of faith. He believed God when he told him, I'm going to make your offspring like the stars of the sky. What distinguished David is he says, I believe that God can even take me, a little shepherd boy, and kill this giant. That's what's great about that story. Sometimes we tell the story of David and Goliath like David's such a great guy. No, he's a man of faith and God is a great God. And that's the point of that story. And immediately after that that happens, all of a sudden everyone starts to praise praise David. And Saul gets really irritated. And so there's a scene that happens that we've got drawn up here where you've got the good king and the bad king. um, And where Saul gets so mad at David. David actually used to come and would play his harp and would sing for Saul in order to calm him because um, he was afflicted with demons, that he was so disturbed. And he got so angry one time at David because of the way the people were praising him. He takes a spear and he throws it across the room and just misses David, and David takes off. So the rest of the book of Samuel is this unfolding of, of David who knows he now has been anointed king, but he refuses to take it by force. He says, I have been appointed king, but... Even though I am king over Israel, I'm not going to take my kingdom by force. I'm going to wait until God raises me up. I'm not going to take, and he has several opportunities to kill Saul and to take it immediately. And God says, no, that's not the way. And David says, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to wait for God to lift me up. And at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies, and 2 Samuel begins with David now being king. And if you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David. And two weeks ago, we talked about the different covenants that God made with his people. Here's one more that he makes specifically with David. And he tells David, not only are you going to be the king, but someone from your descendants, your house, your dynasty, will always be the one who is going to be the king, the Messiah, the anointed one. It will be someone who is from your house. And he makes him a number number of promises here. In chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 8. 2 Samuel 7, 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. This is Nathan, um, a prophet of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house as a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He should build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see the promise he makes to him? And, and right in there's some stuff about Solomon that you see played out in the rest. Solomon builds the temple of the Lord, but then he's incredibly rebellious. But what he did with Saul when Saul rebelled is he withdrew from him and said, you are no longer going to be king over my people. But he looks at David and he says, David, when your son grows up and he rebels, I will discipline him like a son and I will not remove the kingdom from him like I did from Saul. And that's his solemn promise to him. So we see there in this promise that there's going to be some Davidic king and that in this picture, he's going to be the one. Remember we talked about the idea of shalom, of peace, of everything being the way that it should be. And we begin to see that this king that God is talking about that is, is going to come is going to bring, he's going to be a king of shalom, a king who brings perfect peace and makes everything the way that it should be. And he begins to promise this to David in this permanent covenant. Now, as you go through the, the rest of the book, Samuel, Kings, every king is assessed against, what, what is the comparison that every king is made? It's David. Is he like David or isn't he? Is he like David in that he was after the Lord with his whole heart? Or is he not like David in that he turned to other gods? And that's always the assessment all the way through, that David becomes the picture, the example, the paradigm of what a good king should look like. Now, as, as we've talked about it, it just starts going downhill, and the king after king after king, and there's this sense of, where is this promised Davidic king? Right? Things are getting worse. David was great. Solomon did some great things, but then he started going downhill. After him, his son split the kingdom into two parts, and the thing just keeps going farther and farther downhill. A couple little bright spots, but for the most part, straight downhill. Well, in the middle of that, I want to read you a couple passages from the prophets. You can just note down where they are if you want, but just listen. In Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, Isaiah looks forward to a time when this Davidic king, this, this ultimate king, is going to come. He says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of Shalom there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, Isaiah looks forward to a time when a kid is going to be born. And we, we're familiar with this verse from Christmas time. We know that at the incarnation of Jesus that this is what they saw being fulfilled. But he says he will be the prince of shalom, right? He'll be the one who brings in the way things ought to be. And specifically two things, justice and righteousness. Don't we long for justice in this world? For everything to be set right? For everyone to stop doing horrible things to one another? Of justice and righteousness. Listen to what, the way Jeremiah looks forward to it. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. See, Jeremiah looks forward to the same time. And as, as Israel is even in the midst of being taken captive and dispersed, I mean, you think it's bad here where our economy is kind of going south and people are losing jobs. We're talking about another nation has conquered and they're being scattered to the ends of the earth, and Jeremiah comes and says, look, there's coming a time where God's going to send this righteous one, and he will deal justice and righteousness. He will execute justice and righteousness. 
Ezekiel puts it this way, and there's many more places you could go into the, the prophets, but just one last one. In Ezekiel 34, he unfolds this picture. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter of Ezekiel 34 because he just calls out Israel for being bad shepherds. You've had all these sheep and you've been horrible shepherds. You've used the sheep and then the sheep have been bad to each other. He says, look, some of you are fat sheep and what you do is you go and you get to the grass first and you get to the clean water and then you stomp all over the rest of the grass and you muddy the water with your feet so that the skinny sheep, when they come down, they've got to eat muddy grass and they've got to eat muddy water. He says, look, that's what, that's what my sheep's acting like. He says, look, there's coming a day when I'm going to come and I will be their shepherd. You read Ezekiel 34 if you want to understand what Jesus is talking about when he says he's the good shepherd. Go back there and read it. But as part of the prophecy, this is what God says in verse 23. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And then when you read in verses 25 to 31, it says that this Davidic king will bring a covenant of peace, a covenant of shalom, that he is going to bring this new creation. And so the prophets look forward. Even in the midst of everything completely falling apart, they say there's coming a time when this perfect king is going to come and he's going to set everything right. And then we turn to the very first verse of the New Testament. And for some of you, you thought the Bible started there. Um, the two-thirds of it that come before that actually matter, as you're starting to find out, I hope. Um, the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In that one little statement there, Matthew is tying in all of this stuff. It's not only the story we've been telling today, but the story we told two weeks ago, right? Because he says the son of Abraham. He's saying that Jesus Christ is the one who has now come in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise as the seed, as the blessing, but he has also come as the Davidic king. That he is, when he says Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. Some people seem to think that, right? Maybe Lord's his first name, Jesus' middle name, and Christ's his last name. His name is Jesus. Christ means anointed one. That he, When you read that, stop in your head. It's like the word peace. You've got to stop in your head and say, okay, that's shalom. That's the way things ought to be. When you read Christ, stop and say, okay, that's, he's the anointed one. He, he was going back and it's tying in with all of this prophecy of, of the anointed one, the son of David. The son of David that was looked to when God made the promise to him, Right? And he immediately begins to tie in that Jesus Christ is the one who is the fulfillment. He is this king of shalom that has now come to make everything right. And then we begin to see that in Jesus' ministry, he keeps going back to this idea of kingdom. That John the Baptist, as he was preparing the way for Jesus, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. That the king has come, that the king is now come upon the earth and he is bringing his kingdom In Matthew 4 and in Matthew 9, it says that Jesus was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. We read that a couple weeks ago. Every disease, every affliction, that the king of peace making things the way that they should be means that he's healing all the diseases. He's forgiving sins. He's making it. He's brought the gospel of the kingdom. Now, for many of us, we go around thinking the gospel is just about his death and his resurrection. But Jesus says that in his life, he brought the gospel of this message that the king has come to reign. The king has come to make things right. And that he demonstrates through his life that this is what it looks like for things to be right. For the world the way that it should be. This is what it looks like. Look at my life. That he came to heal and to set free the captives and to set free the oppressed. And he says, this is what it should look like. He's come to execute justice and righteousness. Like the prophet said that he would. And he comes and he says, look, it is me. In Luke chapter 4, turn there with me. As Luke tells the story of Jesus initiating his ministry, he comes to his hometown after being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Luke 4, 16, it says he came to Nazareth. 
where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, right? He has this Messiah. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. And you can just imagine the, the tension of this moment. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they get mad at him. And he tells them, Look, this, and part of what he confronts them with in the passage right after this, he says, Look, this has come not just for you, but it's come to the Gentiles because you keep rejecting. You, Israel, have been hard-hearted, and that's why God in the past and God is continuing to take this message outside of Israel. He says, that, that's what God has to do because within Israel, within a hometown, you won't even give a hearing to a prophet. And he goes down and he begins to he, he heals a man of an unclean demon. He starts to heal many. And it says down in verse 42, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The people sought him and came to him, would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You see, Jesus saw his ministry as a ministry of the king of Shalom and bringing the good news. See, we, we think of evangelism as going out and trying to convert people. Evangelism is going out and proclaiming the kingdom of God, that Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, has come to reign as the king of peace in this world, and that we go and we proclaim that fact. That's what you're doing. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news that the king has come to make everything right, that the way that people want it to be, that the king of those things has come to make it right. At the end of his life, Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it is as you say. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. Now, as we noted the other time, it, it ends not in exactly the way that we expected. And the disciples say this. Remember Acts 1, when he ascends, and they say, is it time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right, all of a sudden, this, this picture all starts to fit together, right? That's what God was saying in the Old Testament. It's what the prophets look forward to. So they say, is it time now? And he says, it's none of your business. Remember Acts 1? None of your business. This is what you're to be about. We're to be all about taking the message. He says, I've left you with a great commission. All authority has been given to me, and now I will be with you to the end of the age, and you are now to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. That's what we're to be about in the meantime. And we're going to come back to what it looks like in just a, a little bit, what it looks like for us to live under his kingship. But this is the way that it ends, is that we go from him ascending to one day Jesus being the forever king. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, as Jesus being the forever king, it says that he is the king of kings. And I know it's a little bit hard to see, but see all the guys kneeling down? You see what's just to the left of each one of them? It's a crown that all of the kings of the earth will bow down before the one who is the king of kings. And that's the day that we look forward to, that he will be the forever king. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is the way that Paul looked forward to it. In verse 24, as Paul is unfolding, beginning in verse 15, verse 1, he says that this is the gospel which I preach to you. And as you continue down, you get to verse 24, where he says this is the way that it all ends. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You see, that's the time we live in now. That Jesus is in the process of putting every enemy under his feet and that he will, there will come a point where he will finally and completely accomplish this. And that's when the end comes. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what resurrection is all about. You see, Jesus has the first fruits, the first one to get resurrected. He proves that one day death will be destroyed. That's the final enemy that will be destroyed. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. 
But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. It's talking about the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You see, Paul looks forward to a time where Jesus has fully and completely accomplished everything that God sent him to do. Right, that from the fall on, God has said, okay, I am redeeming, I am restoring, I am fixing, I'm going to bring about new creation. And Jesus, as my son, you are going to be the one who is going to accomplish this. And in a very specific and particular way, you're going to go and you're going to live as a man. And then you're going to die on the cross, you're going to raise from the dead, you're going to ascend. And you will then, through your people, by our spirit, we will exercise this and we will bring this to completion. And that Jesus, in that last day, the picture there is of Jesus saying, okay, you wanted a people for yourself. Here it is. You wanted a world that was restored. Here it is. Everything that you wanted, Father, everything when you created the world and then it went in rebellion against you, everything you wanted, here it is. And now there's a a return to the way that it was in terms of the Father and the Son's relationship. Says he then subjects himself back to the Father. It's a fascinating picture there where Jesus has been working out this plan of redemption and Paul looks forward to a time when Jesus will say, It's done. Here you go, Father. It's done. And then he will be the forever king. Now that's the story of God. Jesus is the king over all things. Now what are the implications for us? Well, as an American, you're not going to be too happy. Um, Matthew 6, the disciples say, Teach us how to pray, Lord. And he says, Okay, here's the first thing you need to pray. That you pray to the Father and you say, Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The essence of what it means for us to be subjects of a kingdom is not my will, but your will be done. And that's in all areas of your life. That is the core of what it means. The, the implications of this story and that Jesus is the forever king and that right now you are a member of his kingdom is that he is the one that is able to dictate your entire life. That your will is supposed to be in subjection to him. And you don't just get to do whatever you want anymore. Jesus exemplified this, right? At the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's looking to the cross and he knows how painful and how horrible it is, Jesus says to the Father, if there is any other way, if there's any other way. But then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. He says repeatedly, I didn't come to do my own will, but I came to do the will of my Father. Jesus exemplified through his life that this is the way that we ought to live. That we live in subjection to God. There's words that Americans just hate. Submission. Subjection. Not my will, but yours. But if you are truly going to live as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that you will live in submission to him as king. That is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. You see, for many of us, we've been taught and people have have propagated this idea that what it means to be a Christian is to somehow add Jesus to my life. I don't know if you realize this, but if you add a king into your life, things change for you. He doesn't get to be a part of your life. You're part of what he's doing. That's what it means for him to be a king. right? The the implications of kingship for us are huge. In Colossians 1.13... Paul writes this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The domain of darkness. See, domain is a kingdom idea, right? Domain, authority, dominion. That's what those ideas are all about. And he says, if you're here and you are not submitting your life to Jesus, if you have not submitted your life to Jesus Christ and you are not, he's not your king, then you live under the domain of darkness. The domain of the evil one. And he says, that this is a cosmic battle that has been going on. In a couple of weeks, we're going to tell the story of the cosmic battle that has been going on. But he says, look, this is what has happened. If you have become a follower of Jesus Christ, if he has put his spirit in you, if he's made you alive, that what has now happened is you've been transferred from this domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That means you are either a member of the kingdom of darkness, which is when you're living in rebellion and saying, not your will, but my will. That's when you're over there, and when you're on this side, it's, no, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. That we live under his kingdom. Philippians chapter 3, if you want to turn there, just over a couple books. 
Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. He says, brothers, see, Paul sees it as a family. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you now and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He says our citizenship is in heaven. You see, the implication here is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are no longer a citizen of this world. You are now a sojourner. You're a stranger. You're one who's passing through. And if we are to understand what it means to follow and to live like Christ, we have to understand this, that we have to begin to set our eyes instead of on this world as if we're citizens of this world. He says that if you're doing that, you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. Right? As he describes these enemies, he says their God is their belly. The, the idea of whatever they desire is what they do. Doesn't that define our culture now? If it feels good, do it. Right? What, whatever it is that you want to do, People's God is their desire, whatever it is that they're driven to do. But he says, no, instead, we don't set our minds on earthly things, but instead we understand that our citizenship is in heaven. Right? You can only have one allegiance to a king. We are sojourners here. God does not allow rival allegiances in our lives. That he is the king. That means that he is over everything. You see, one way I think, remember the first week we talked about our little belief blender, where we kind of mix things up? This is one area where I think we've really mixed it up. And what we've done is we've mixed in the fact that I'm an American and I'm very patriotic, and we've mixed it in with I'm a Christian, and we blended it up. And now we think of ourselves, the sad thing is we primarily identify ourselves as Americans who just happen to be Christians. But the way the scriptures unfold is that you are Christians who happen to live in America. You are no longer citizens here. You are sojourners. You're strangers. Don't get me wrong. It's a great place for us to be able to live. We can worship freely. But don't think this is heaven. And God will only allow one allegiance to him as king. And here's the question I have. Do you identify more with the unbeliever who's a patriotic American or with the Christian who lives in the Gaza Strip? Which one of them do you somehow think, like, I, that's my family. I closely identify with them. Sadly, as the Christian church in America, we've identified ourselves so much with this country that we do a bunch of things around the world, that we end up supporting things that are destroying and killing brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And it needs to change. Because Jesus Christ is our King And he's the king of our brothers who live in the Gaza Strip. And he's the the king of our brothers who live in Iran. And he's the king of our brothers that live in Russia and in China and in North Korea. And that we ought to hurt for them and identify with them. And that when we think about our people that are dying in the war, immediately for us, you think of our meaning Americans. And you think of it as troops that are dying. Why isn't it that when I say our people, we don't identify with fellow believers? You see, we've we've mixed it up. We don't really believe that Jesus is our king. We don't believe that our citizenship is in heaven. We think our citizenship's here in the the United States and that we just happen to kind of have this religious thing going for us. It's called Christianity. And God says, no. You read through the New Testament and you tell me how... How could you ever think that these people would say, you know what, I'm a Roman citizen and it's all about Rome and I love Rome and Rome's so great and I just kind of do this religious thing on the weekend. No. They were dying for their faith because they said, you know what, we will no longer be a part of this. I'm not going to worship the emperor anymore. That's not where my allegiance is. My allegiance has switched. That a major part of conversion, you have to view 
becoming a Christian as changing your allegiance from something to something else because you will always follow some sort of king. You have to view Christianity and the title of Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, you need to view that as a citizenship statement. That when you say, I'm a Christian, you're saying, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And there is no dual citizenship when you're under a king. We have to be able to view it that way. Now, here's the great thing. There is no monarchy on this earth that is anything like our king. And when I say a king, anything that you're going to think of is nothing like our king because he's a good king. And he loves you and he cares for you and he wants to do what's best for you. And I think one of the best examples of you want to see what kind of king Jesus is is John 13 where he comes and he bows down before the disciples and washes their feet. That's the kind of king we serve. So we want to rebel. We go, I don't want God to tell me what to do. But understand, this is the kind of king that we're talking about. Someone who gave everything for you. He gave everything in order to restore and to fix it. And his way is always better. And our motivation to serve this king should always be looking forward to that day when he's going to fix and make everything right. Another implication of the fact that he is king is that you're not. Quite simple, right? You're a role player. We all want to make our own little kingdoms and we want it to be about us and we want... You know, I ask some people, do you get dizzy with the world revolving around you like that? I mean, it's amazing. It's like, wow, I'd get sick to my stomach with the world revolving around me. We're role players. Remember, Francis, he, he showed Rocky and kind of that one little person in the red shirt, remember? That was kind of in the crowd. I don't know, some of you remember that. But we're bit players. You're not the superstar in the movie. And you should be happy about that and stop trying to write your own story that makes you into the king and stop trying to live that way. You see, some of you are miserable right now because you've been trying to be king over your own life. Some of you have spent so much money trying to be king over your own life that you're in way over your head in debt and and you're choking on it. That's what it's like to be king. Why don't you let it go? He's building a great kingdom He's a lot better at it than you are. And it's much better to be a role player in his kingdom than it is to try and make your own kingdom. You see, the difference is when we plan out our own story, if it doesn't go according to plan, it completely wrecks everything, right? But when we're living according to his story, if things don't go our way, that's fine. You can, if you're following God's plan, you can still thrive even when things don't go your way. Because he's the one that's in charge and you can trust him and you can trust that he will do what is right. I want to walk you through a series of slides because I want to ask you a question. How much of the kingdom, and I want you to think about this question as we look at these slides, how much of the kingdom does the king not rule over? Hey, this is your life. If we look at the next slide, this is what we tend to do is we take our life and then we, we divide it up. We compartmentalize it. We have all sorts of little things here that we think of in our life. We've, we've got our work and we've got our life plan and we've got our religion and our vacation and our morality and retirement and our, our wedding. We've got all these different things that like, we think of as our life. And if I was to ask you to fill it in, you'd kind of put in a whole bunch of things. And we, we say, okay, these, these are all the different aspects of my life. And then I ask you, how much of this does God rule over? Well, you look at the next slide, and, and this is what most of us do. We say he can have the religion box, and he can have the morality box. Well, some of us give him part of the morality box, the part we don't really mind him having. And then you give him 10% of your finance box. And we think that for Jesus to be king means that he gets to rule over those little boxes. And see, the myth that we tell ourselves is that I can compartmentalize my box, my life, into a bunch of little different areas. And I can let Jesus have certain ones, but I get to still control the other ones. And for a lot of us, we have this distinction between things that we think are spiritual and that that's what Jesus has to do with, and that's what the Bible's important for, and that's what I go to service on a weekend for. But then the rest of my life, i got to kind of figure out on my own. And Jesus really doesn't matter for all that kind of stuff. I'm just kind of living out on my own. But the reality is that if, if he is king, how much of the kingdom does he not rule? 
None of it. He, he rules everything, right? So if Jesus is king, he's actually king of your work. And he's not king of 10% of your finances. He's king of 100% of it. He's king over your house, over your education. And let's just walk through a few of those. And as we do, I want you to understand that daily, the conflict that you experience is a kingdom conflict between you wanting to be king and Jesus being king. When you drive home from a long day at work and you see your neighbor across the street and you think to yourself, I know Jesus wants me to talk to him, but I just want to go into my house. You've just reached a point of kingdom conflict. I want, he wants, right? The essence of being under his kingship is not my will, but your will. Kingdom conflict is a reality that you're going to live with each day. Now, the second thing, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, and I just want to start to open this up because within community, within your relationships with fellow believers, these are the kind of questions that you need to be starting to work out. We need to stop just thinking about community as a place for us to talk about our religious life and maybe our moral life. And we don't talk about our finances because we put some money in the box and then that's it. That we need to start opening up all the areas of our life and, and beginning to ask each other because the danger is that we will deceive ourselves. A while back I gave a message on sin and talked about the reality of self-deception. You can deceive yourself. And in some of the questions that I'm going to ask you about these things, that's not supposed to look like that, but um, imagine all the lines and shades gone. Um, the questions that I'm going to ask you, it's going to be real easy for you to sit here in your head and ask yourself the question and come to a great answer and think you're fine. You might be deceiving yourself. These are the kind of questions that you need to start to work through with fellow believers so that you aren't deceived. You must be in community with other people or you will deceive yourself. Let's talk about vocation, what you choose to do as work. What does it mean for Jesus to be king over what you choose to be as work? do as work? Let me ask you an example. Is it okay for a Christian to work in an aerospace company where they primarily make weapons that kill people? I worked in an aerospace company, worked on a number of different projects. One of our divisions made nuclear triggers for nuclear bombs. Is it okay, should you as a Christian work for a company that makes nuclear triggers that creates nuclear bombs? Have you ever even thought to ask yourself that kind of question? Now, I don't want you to think I'm presuming an answer because there's different ways you can go with that. But these are the kind of questions that you need to start asking yourself and in community we need to start working through. Now, you can see why self-deception is going to be so big here because let's say you actually do that. There might be someone here that you do work at a company like that. You want the answer to be, yes, it's fine, immediately, right? And you're probably sitting there going, no, it's fine. You know, you're making me a little uncomfortable, but I think it's fine. Why don't you... Instead, talk with some fellow believers and work through the issues. Why might it? Why might it not be? What are the pros and cons? How do we work through this kind of thing? If Jesus is actually Lord over what we do, let me ask you another one. Is it okay for a Christian to be a, a family lawyer, a divorce lawyer? Is that okay? Have you ever thought that through? Have you thought through that what you do, does what you do actually, is there... Is Jesus actually king in the area of the way you've chosen to work? If a person is a family lawyer, what if they're a divorced lawyer that seeks in all they can do to reconcile? Right? There might be two different ways that that completely works out. Right? I'm not wanting to presume the answer there. Is it okay? Let's take a different kind of example. Is it okay for a Christian to work at a fast food restaurant that encourages gluttony? Supersize it. What about at a lot of restaurants where the servers are encouraged to try and get the people to buy more things, right? Many restaurants, that's, that's what servers are encouraged. And in fact, if they don't do it well, they'll get fired. You're trying to upsell, get people to buy stuff they don't need. What is the morality? How does Jesus' kingship come to bear in how you work that out in your life? You see, all of life, every little thing, and for each one of us, we can't make these decisions on our own, right? It's incredibly difficult to think through some of these things. What if you're involved in a job that is primarily aimed at vanity? Can a Christian be a plastic surgeon that primarily just does cosmetic, making things nicer than they were, say? We tend to segregate and we say, no, 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 my religious life, I go to church, I give him money, I give him all that part of my life, and this is separate, this is different. In fact, I make a lot of money at it and I give it to the church. No, Jesus is king. 
You know what? There's some great things that plastic surgeons can do that are for the kingdom. There's kids with deformities that need restorative surgery. But do we think through vocationally what that looks like? What about being a financial planner? If you're a Christian, you're a financial planner. What does that look like? Do you, can you be a Christian financial planner that you, primarily what you're doing with your clients is helping them establish a great retirement and essentially, in their mind, heaven on earth? Or there's a whole different perspective that has everything to do with stewardship. Can you be a financial planner that helps people plan so they can give everything away before they die? You see, Jesus' kingship has huge implications for whatever you do. And I hope you see these are complicated questions that you need to work out in discussions with one another. And we've been living as, as Christians primarily with our heads in the sand and we just pretend this is, this is no problem. Let me talk to some of you young ladies, single young ladies, about your wedding plans. Your day. It's my day, right? Is Jesus off the throne for that day? You talk to women about their wedding plans, and so many of them have these incredible plans that have nothing to do with God or Jesus. And I just got to tell you, Jesus is king over that day. Does it make sense to spend forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars on a wedding? Is Jesus' kingship? Does it come to bear on the way that you even have your wedding? Some of you are planners. You planned out your life, and you know exactly the way that it's supposed to unfold. And then things don't go quite your way, and all of a sudden things start to fall apart. Jesus is the one who has the plan. Stop making a plan of falling apart when it doesn't happen. What do you do with your free time? Here's a good one, and I ask my kids this. and um, So I encourage you parents, teach your kids this, but just know it's going to come back to bite you. I ask them, whose stuff is it? Whatever it is, right? That's my toy. Who's, whose is it? What's the right answer? It's God's, right? How many of you own a house? Well, sort of. Whose house is it? It's God's house, right? Whose car is it? It's God's car. Whose money is it? All of it. It's God's money. Now, you'll start answering this back to me. Realize there's huge implications for that. Let's say I've got three or four cars, and a fellow believer is in need of a car. If it's God's car, what should I do? It's God's kingdom. This is God's family. I've got a surplus. They have a need. We are so just steeped in the idea of personal property, and it's mine, mine, mine. That's, what, that's another part of what our country was founded on. No, it's, it's kingdom resources. I need to shift it around. Man, education. Why, why do you get an education? And my, I, at the Bible college, I constantly have to deal with this with people because people in their mind equate, I'm going to go get a good education so I can get a good job so I can make lots of money and have a wonderful life. That's the connection that everyone draws, and that is not why you go to get an education. How does Jesus' kingship come to, to bear on what you do in terms of your education? Does a biblical education matter? Because I'll tell you, if you go and you pursue a vocation at a place that doesn't have anything, if, let's say you go pursue a vocation in financial planning at a place that has no biblical basis, that you're never going to think about Jesus' kingship unless you somehow have someone bringing input into your life to get you to change the way that you think about those things. What do you do with vacation? Does Jesus' kingship come to bear on what you do with vacation and how you take it and where you go? Is it okay for Christians to retire? Is it okay for you to pursue a life of setting aside lots of money so there might come a time when you can stop working and just drive around in an RV? Or whatever it is you might want to do? You see, we're taking hopes of new creation and we're trying to establish them here and we're doing it at the detriment to the rest of the kingdom. You have to think through those things. Let's talk a little bit about finances, because no one ever likes to, but here we go. Finances are the most deceptive thing you're ever going to deal with. And you guys know that, and that's why you never talk to anyone, and most of you will never let anyone look at what you spend your money on. And that's exactly why you should. Money is incredibly deceptive, and it will deceive you, and you ought to 
have people in your life that you trust that can actually see what you spend your money on. I had a friend, he and I were talking through this, and we got to a point where we said, you know what, if it's all God's money, if what's in my wallet's as much God's money as yours is, why shouldn't our two families have a joint checking account? You see, implications start to become pretty huge. Why should both families have to do their own set of bills and reconcile two separate checkbooks? And there's just kind of an efficiency sense of why should we do this? You know why we don't want him? I don't want him to see what I spend my money on. And he doesn't want me to see what I spend, he spends his money on. You see, we don't really think of it as kingdom resources. We think of it as ours and that I happen to kind of give a little bit to God and give a little bit here and there instead of really viewing it all as God's. And it ends up making us live in really foolish ways. Financially, should we buy the cheapest stuff, even if it's made in some place like China where we know that their, their laws, their employment laws are, are awful and they even have slave labor? Is that good stewardship to spend as little as possible and buying things from places where we know there's child labor and slave labor being employed? If Jesus is king, we have to ask these sorts of questions. And for so long, the church hasn't asked these questions. All right, now a couple issues. I'm, I'm going to move on because that's uncomfortable. Um, for some of you, you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what, I want to do that, but I'm married to a husband who doesn't trust Christ and he's not going to let me do it. Some of you are younger and you're saying, you know what, I'd love to do that, but my parents won't let me live that way. Well, let me just address those kind of issues. That if you're in a situation where you want to do something and you're unable to, Jesus says the way that kingship comes to bear in your life, and this is one of the unique things about him as king, is he says what it means for him to be king is that we are all called to submit to the authorities that he put over us. So if you're a wife in that situation, you need to submit to that husband. First Peter 2 and 3, you can go read it. He says, look, even in the worst possible, the worst government, the worst parents, the worst employer, the worst husband, doesn't matter what it is, the worst, 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 God says you are to submit to them. That's what it means to submit to me as king, is you submit to those who I've put in authority over you. You don't live in rebellion against them. And that's what it looks like. Another thing I want to say is if, if I've been reading through some of this and, and you're looking back on decisions you've made and some of you are in an awful situation, understand that's the consequences of trying to be your own king. But don't let yourself be condemned for it. God has grace for you and he calls you to turn and begin living differently now. Don't just live in condemnation like, oh, I've messed my life up so bad and I have nothing there. Live in grace and what God wants to do. The last thing, the final implication of Jesus King, and I could, on, I could go on. There's all kinds of implications of this, but the last one is this. We have been designed to adore a king. If the events of the last two weeks didn't make that clear, as the king of pop died and all this weird adoration, I'll just be frank with you, I thought it was really weird. Like adoration and praise for a man that I don't think deserve that kind of adoration and praise. But what does that show us? Instead of us looking at them and going, wow, you're so wrong to adore and praise him, we should say, you're so right to adore and praise, but it shouldn't be directed towards him. God designed us to adore and praise a wonderful king. I mean, what we saw with Michael Jackson is what happened with Elvis. I don't know, there might be some people here that remember that, but that was a while ago. The other king, right? Why do we call them kings? I mean, it's amazing. We just, we want to worship And that's where mission comes in for us. You see, there's a a whole world out there that wants to worship a wonderful, caring, loving king. And we need to be the ones that go out and say, here's the caring and loving king that you ought to worship. At the end, and if we could just see the last slide, or the Jesus says our forever king. I want to read you a verse from Revelation. This is what we have to look forward to. Revelation 11.15 says this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, do you look forward to that day? Are you living like it now? Are you letting Jesus be king over everything now? Because in that day, we're going to be doing a lot of the same stuff we're doing now, but he's going to be king over all of it. You're not going to just be able to do whatever you want. You're going to do whatever he wants, and it will be better. Now, for some of you, You're here, and you're part of the rebellion. You're part of the domain of darkness. And I just want to ask you, come and submit to a good king. And if some of you need prayer, you might need to repent. You might need to say, you know what? I've been trying to live as king over these things, and I need to turn. There'll be people up at the prayer room to pray with you. You might need to get baptized. Part of baptism is saying, you know what? I'm submitting myself to the king. 
I'm going to do whatever he tells me. He tells me to get baptized. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to become a part of what he's doing. Come up and pray with someone and get baptized. I just encourage you, let this be the day when you once again turn that we all recommit ourselves. I'm going to submit my life to the king. Bring it more and more in line with what the king wants to do. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You are the one that deserves all of our adoration, all of our praise. You deserve everything. You are worthy to receive all praise and honor and dominion forever and ever. We look forward to the day, Lord, when we will stand with the multitudes from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and we will stand together and give you honor and praise. Lord, in the meantime, may you take each one of us, may you use us to work in each other's lives, to live like it now. Lord, we do truly love you. Help us to live it out. Empower us by your spirit, Lord. We beg you for a movement of your spirit in our lives. It's the name of your Son, our Savior, that we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.